two things about the Russian Empire. It's very big, stretching from the Pacific Ocean into the Arctic, the Black Sea, bordering Turkey, Afghanistan and Poland. And it's left it vulnerable to invasion from Europe and the consequent requirements to mobilize such a vast and relatively underdeveloped territory led to the growth of a bureaucratic military apparatus that was so centralized and so coercive it constantly undermined the position of certain sections of the property class. This held Russian commerce back. The hegemony of the Orthodox Church also isolated Russia from the West and prevented the emergence of an independent intellectual culture outside of the urban centres of Moscow and St. Petersburg in the Empire's European hub. And I'll also be referring to St. Petersburg as Petrograd, as this was the Russified name that was given to it during the First World War. Towards the end of the 19th century, the Russian Empire contained over a hundred ethnicities and confessional groups. Though Russians regarded themselves as the dominant political, religious and economic and cultural force, they were demographically in a minority. Since the Polish Rebellion of 1863, there was a concerted effort to ban non-Russian languages from schools and official institutions in order to better incorporate Belarusians, Georgians, Lithuanians and Ukrainians and all these other ethnic groups into the state. As, alongside Jews, Poles were regarded as the most recalcitrant, Poland was more or less under martial law continuously. In 1869, the Polish University in Warsaw became a Russian one, and Poles in civil or administrative positions were pushed out of their jobs. State interpolation of this type, unsurprisingly, did not succeed in civilising the masses as obedient subjects of the Russian Empire, but rather opponents, particularly as means of transportation and communication developed accelerating the production of non-Russian language newspapers, journals and books, with the consequence that national self-determination became a fixture of radical politics in the empire's peripheries. Late Imperial Russia was overwhelmingly agrarian. Three quarters of the population sustained itself through farming, where there was very little mechanisation. The wooden plough and the handheld sickle were the most commonly used tools. Fertilisers were not widely applied, so grain yields were well below those seen in other countries, and the food supply was therefore highly vulnerable to famine. Peasants held their land in communal tenure. The village fields were divided into narrow strips, which were tilled separately by various peasant households. In 1861, Emperor Alexander II had abolished serfdom. Before this, peasants worked their strips of the village land, as well as their master's land, or paid him the equivalent of their labour and money. After emancipation, they worked their own land and sometimes worked for hire on the land of their former master, while continuing to make redemption payments to offset the compensation the state had paid out to the landowners. These were scheduled to last for 49 years. The entire village community was held responsible for the debts of all of its members, and this bound peasants to the village, preventing a mass influx of proletarianised peasants into the towns, and also reinforcing the old system of communal land tenure. In 1905, in the section of the empire west of the Urals, fewer than half of babies reached the age of five. Diseases like measles and diphtheria were endemic, and throughout this period, peasant demands for purchase orders and the strengthening of proprietorship are continually escalating. Out in the countryside, there are cases of land and food seizure, as well as landlords being burned out of their estates. In 1913, Russia actually ranked fifth in the growth of industrial nations, but in per capita terms, it was more in the league of Bulgaria and Romania, with 14 million workers being employed in factories, mines, railways, steamships, construction as labourers. Russia joined the gold standard in 1897 to extend the state as well as private borrowers reach on capital markets. And you had Belgian, British and French capital all investing in their banking, engineering, gold, insurance, mining and oil industries. 10 or 11 hour days were commonplace. Workers slept at their machines or in dormitories where the conditions were horrendous. Industrial accidents were very common. Most workers were not insured. Trade unions and strikes were illegal. Despite the small size of the working class relative to the population, they were very densely concentrated in places like St. Petersburg, where one half of industrial workers were employed in enterprises of more than 500 people. 
This made it significantly easier to mobilize large numbers and strikes, and that's alongside the greater amounts of opportunities cities offer for cultural advancement and exposure through ideas, through evening classes, schools or libraries. The first modern revolutionary movement in Russia began in the 1870s when hundreds of young middle-class intellectuals identifying themselves as populists or narodniki went into the countryside to spread revolutionary propaganda among the peasantry, believing that the peasant commune inculcated values of collectivism and egalitarianism through which Russia could bypass the evils of European industrial capitalism. Marx and Engels' stance on this was contradictory, though in overall terms Marx's view was that the purgatory of capitalism is something that humanity has to undergo before the salvation of socialism is available. The question arises as to whether this applied to every country separately or, once it was established in some places, if other nations could just skip right through. Marx made some comments in his correspondence and private notes towards the end of his life about the possibility of this happening in Russia. In a letter to Vera Zasulich, at that stage an anarchist, Engels allowed that the village commune might provide a nucleus of socialist transition if it survived until there was a proletarian revolution in the West. So this was used by the populace in defence of their strategy. Georgi Plakhanov, a dropout from the army, was a founding member of Land and Freedom, an important Erodnik organisation, and worked for a time organising revolutionary groups in Saratov and writing Bakuninist manifestos. In the event, the Russian peasantry were suspicious of these activists and a lot of the Narodniki were turned over to the police. With the failure of this approach to activism, the organisation split, one side going into people's will, which waged a campaign of assassination of state officials in order to promote popular insurgency. This culminated in the assassination of Tsar Alexander II when a small bomb was thrown at his carriage, and black repartition, which concentrated on propagandising among the workers on the basis that only a mass movement would be successful in achieving socialism. Blakhanov, Zizulich, who I've already mentioned, were important figures here, but so was a man named Pavel Axelrod. All three of these were forced to flee from state repression abroad. Blakhanov settled in Geneva, reconverted to Marxism, becoming convinced that Russia had to undergo a capitalist phase of development and that this transformation would bring into existence a more adequate vehicle of social change in the form of an industrial proletariat. And on that basis, the efforts of socialists were best directed towards the founding and organising of a mass workers' party. And as such, they founded the Labour Emancipation Group in 1883. It never became a party as such. It consisted of its founders mostly, but it was represented in Paris in 1889 at the founding of the Second International, which is the larger body within which the European social democratic movements were contained. In 1887, a group of terrorists were hanged for trying to kill the new Tsar, Alexander III. And there were six people in on the conspiracy. The group was called the Terrorist Faction of People's Will. And three of them straightforwardly considered themselves adherents of People's Will. And the other three were social democrats who might have recognised the applicability of Marxism to a Russian context, as well as the importance of organising among the working class, but in practice regarded this as subordinate to terrorist methods. And among the anarchist members of the conspiracy was a man named Alexander Olyanov, who was the son of Ilya Olyanov and brother to a man named Vladimir Eilich, who I will be referring to as Lenin from this point on. Lenin's father was a teacher and a school inspector, and he would have been part of a generation of Russians that favoured liberal social reforms, such as the extension of the suffrage, which proved unviable because, in 1866, a student named Dmitry Karakazov fired a bullet at Alexander II. Whatever space there was for the extension of political liberties was rolled back very quickly. Lenin was a very intelligent student. He was actually taught by the father of a man named Alexander Kerensky, who will be coming up later, and his academic reports of Lenin were glowing. He did much to convince university authorities that Lenin was not tainted by his brother's terrorism. Nevertheless, the police intervened to ensure Lenin completed his university education in Kazan, rather than in one of the larger cities with more developed radical student movements, and this is where Lenin studied law. 
He appeared as a counsel for the defense for 10 criminal cases in St. Petersburg, all of them petty theft prompted by poverty, involving peasants, village workers, or paupers, and incidentally, he lost all of them. It was around this period that he was reading Marx for the first time. Friedrich Engels' book, Andy During, was a very influential form, as well as material Plakhanov was producing. In the political circles he was moving in, Lenin was arguing a lot with anarchists and populists, pressing them on how exactly they would seize power and enforce their decrees once they had, who exactly the people they intended to mobilize were. In 1896, together with Alexander Potrasov and Julius Martov, Lenin founded the Union for the Struggle for the Emancipation of the Working Class, which repudiated terrorism as a method and sought to fight for civil liberties while organizing the industrial working class. He went to Geneva to meet Plakhanov and Axelrod. When he returned, he was imprisoned and sent into exile in Siberia, where he wrote pamphlets and articles setting out what he regarded as the necessary strategic and theoretical orientations for the Russian social democracy. He also wrote a history of the development of Russian capitalism, documenting the growth of a commodity economy, class differentiation and proletarianization in the countryside. Rosa Luxemburg was born in 1871 in Zamosk in southeastern Poland, which had been taken into the Russian Empire in 1815. The Luxembourgs were Jewish, one third of the population in the area was too, but the Luxembourgs were largely assimilated. They spoke Polish and they were very well versed in German culture. Luxembourg was a highly intelligent student and she only missed out on a gold medal for academic achievement because of her rebellious attitude regarding the school authorities. In the late 1880s, early 90s, there was the burst of activity in the Polish labour movement with a number of strike waves and demonstrations to the extent that the army was often being sent in to repress the workers. The arrest that followed prompted the leaders of the Polish Social Democratic Organization, Proletariat and the Union of Polish Workers, to go into exile in Galicia or Switzerland, as well as Polish parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Luxembourg left for Zurich, where she studied natural sciences and mathematics, and entered into a relationship with a man named Leo Gogiches, who had been born in Vilna in 1867 to a prosperous Jewish family, and had founded a revolutionary circle from which a lot of the most important figures in the Jewish Social Democratic Organization, the Bund, were to emerge. In 1892, a Congress of Polish Socialists in exile founded the Polish Socialist Party, or PPS. The PPS only covered Russian Poland, as it had failed to link the party up with existing organizations in Galicia and Silesia. It was theoretically committed to the tactics of mass action, but due to the objective conditions they were operating under, namely illegality under Tsarism, individual acts of assassination still formed a large part of party strategy. As we saw in the previous lecture, the German bourgeoisie was not as militant as its counterpart in France. As the 19th century went on, it was largely happy to throw its lot in with Prussia and its army under Bismarck, which very much shaped the federation of 25 states. An increased population, enormous amounts of coal reserves, iron production, and the most developed chemical industry had made Germany one of the most advanced industrial nations of Europe. It was among the first to apply electricity in production, produce the internal combustion engine on industrial scale. Towards the end of 1914, Germany led Europe in the production of industrial appliances. Each of the 25 states within the Reich retained their own constitution. Prussia had a king, it was also the German emperor. Bavaria, Saxony and Württemberg had their own kings. Baden and Hesse had their grand dukes and some of the free cities had senates. Each had legislative assemblies with a nominated upper chamber and elected lower chamber. The electoral systems varied from universal suffrage to taxpayers to a tiered system based on possession of property. Legislative power was shared between the Bundesrat, which is made up of delegates from the states, and the Reichstag, which was a national assembly elected by male suffrage over the age of 25, though in practice it was further restricted by gerrymandering to the benefit of rural electors. It could also not initiate legislation, it couldn't pass any without the agreement of the Bundesrat, and it also could not depose the Chancellor, even if a majority of representatives wanted to. The 17 Prussian delegates to the Bundesrat could stop any measure 
which displeased the government, which was a bastion of landowners which personally pledged allegiance to the emperor and regarded themselves as having been entrusted with a sacred mission to defend the state. And this Prussian attitude was dominant in the imperial bureaucracy and among federal civil servants. This meant that intermittent attempts of a more liberal constitutionalist base to push the Reich government more in the direction of traditional liberalism, free trade and government support for the growing industrial and commercial base against landed gentry were ineffectual. All this was in contradiction with the country's social evolution. Two-thirds of the population lived in cities. In 1910, bank capital was fused with industrial capital to an extent that only the US exceeded it, and the proletariat constituted just under 70% of the population. However, this proletariat was distinct from the one in England that Marx and Engels had devoted most of their attention to. The German working class was well-educated, technically sophisticated, and well-organised. Germany offered such a promising terrain for socialist rule for much the same reason that Russia did. It was significant industrial development alongside very robust feudal remnants. The Social Democratic Party of Germany, or SPD, was the largest, most unified and theoretically sophisticated European party. In an election in 1890, the party got 1.5 million votes at the polls and secured 35 seats in the Reichstag. The origins of the SPD lie in the Social Democratic Workers' Party, which was founded in 1869 in Eisenach, under August Babel, who was a turner in the metallurgical industry, and Wilhelm Liebknecht, a teacher and acquaintance of Marx and Engels. Babel and Liebknecht were elected to the Reichstag, and they opposed the war with France, the annexation of Alsace and Lorraine, as well as Bismarck's assisting Thiers in crushing the Paris Commune. In 1875, the Social Democratic Workers' Party and the General Association of German Workers, under the charismatic self-styled aristocrat Ferdinand LaSalle, united to form the Social Democratic Workers' Party of Germany, or SADP, under the Gotha Programme, which represented a compromise between Orthodox Marxism and a more liberal LaSallean socialism in order to bring together the two competing factions in German social democracy. This organisation was later renamed the SDP. Marx, who regarded everyone involved as a second-rate intellect, wrote a scathing critique of this programme on the basis of its concessions to LaSalle, who enjoyed considerable support among German workers, but held the notion that social antagonisms could be partially resolved via a combination of parliamentary majorities and the steady development of producer cooperatives. The SPD had 1,085,000 members in 1914. The trade unions which it had brought into existence had more than 2 million members, and around it there was a broad network of parallel organisations which extended into almost every section of social life. There were SPD organisations of socialist women, people's universities, reading societies, newspapers, all of which rested on a competent, efficient technical apparatus. 267 journalists, 3,000 manual and clerical workers, managers, commercial directors and representatives. It had hundreds of deputies in local government and thousands of municipal councillors. The SPD's organisations corresponded to the size of rural or urban district councils, and above this was the province, and then the central party organisation, which consisted of committees and commissions. The executive was the authority, and it was under the chairmanship of Liebknecht and Bebel, who, together with a Czech-Austrian student of economics, philosophy and history named Karl Kautsky, determined party policy. The activities and composition of this executive was subject to ratification at every annual congress. Above this was the International, a loose federation of parties and trade unions rather than a uniform, centralised organisation with a defined body of doctrine acknowledged by all its members, and it was mostly dominated anyway by the French and German sections. In 1891, a new party programme was drafted by Kautsky and Edward Bernstein, the editor of the Social Democrat, a participant in the Gotha Congress and an acquaintance of Engels. Kautsky, having elaborated the foundational precepts of the entire European social democratic movement in his publication Die Neue Zeit, 
took responsibility for the theoretical section and its ratification at the Erfurt Congress steered between the demands of a younger left wing calling for a boycott of elections and a permanent offensive stance and an older reformist wing. And Kautsky chose both in proclaiming the need to fight for reforms in preparation for the revolution. There were very important and influential sections of the Second International conducting their own debates on socialism in an international and a domestic context. Austria, Belgium, France, Italy, Spain, to just throw off some random examples, but for the sake of ease and brevity, I'm concentrating on the most important sections for this period. There were two competing strains within Polish social democracy. The first had a more economistic outlook and had little interest in the question of Polish independence. Based on the argument that the Polish masses were as much exploited by their own ruling class as the Russians, the Polish bourgeoisie was not a revolutionary one, and the emphasis had to lie on the class rather than the national struggle. The second tendency took the view that socialism could not be built in a country that was being oppressed by another, and secondly, that Polish socialists could not depend on the Russian working class to advance their interests. Now, due to the difficulties of organising under absolutism, a lot of these disputes were conducted among intellectuals living in Geneva, Paris or Zurich, rather than in the context of any real workers' movement as such. In any case, the PPS upheld the idea that historical Poland had to reconstruct itself independently of the Russian Empire. In her doctoral thesis, Luxembourg represented capitalist development in Poland as a mere appendage to developments in Russia, and on that basis argued that Poland could not form a political entity separate from it. Reports Luxembourg submitted on local activities of the international, uh, which opposed the reconstruction of historical Poland, began to expose this division within the Polish social democracy. She was allowed to speak as a minority faction at a Congress, but it ruled against her. So Luxembourg walked out in protest and formed a new Polish social democratic party, the Social Democracy of the Kingdom of Poland, or SDKP. The minimum program of the SDKP was a liberal constitution for the entire Russian empire with a half federal solution for Poland. Luxembourg argued Polish socialists join the socialist parties of the European power that controlled the section of Poland that they lived in, whether Austrian, German or Russian, and therefore called on the Russians to form a united party that would provide a place for the SDKP to go. Plakhanov turned Luxembourg's request for affiliation down. He personally disliked Gogic's and by association Luxembourg, gleefully reporting the disarray the Poles were into Engels, describing Luxembourg as Gogic's female appendage. Marx and Engels' stances on the national question were contradictory. They denounced Tsarist imperialism, as well as the exploitation of Ireland by England, but the forms of national oppression they disregarded could often seem arbitrary. They regarded the Danes and the Czechs as troublesome and uncivilised, unimportant in comparison with Germany. They thought Poland was an important lever that could be turned against the Prussians, but this did not prevent Engels from writing to Marx about how the Polish did not have any real claims to nationhood and that the Germans should annex them. Engels also wrote positively about Yanks expropriating Mexican land, believing the settlers would make more productive use of it. Engels' view was that non-Russian Slavs had no history. The point of all this is they did not offer a coherent schema to the Second International, which had to balance a theory that placed the emphasis on class with their attempts to canvass for support among subject peoples in Europe. The upsurge in revolutionary activity towards the end of the 19th century raised the fortunes of socialist parties across Europe. The Russian Socialist Revolutionaries, SRs, the Bund, the PPS all grew. The SDKP incorporated Lithuanian section, renaming itself the Social Democracy of the Kingdom of Poland and Lithuania, or SDKPIL. And an important figure within this merger is Felix Dzerzhinsky, who had escaped Lithuania from exile in Siberia. It spread to a number of major industrial cities in Poland, as well as the Dobroa coal mines. 
Their leadership was very international. Almost all of them were active in parties other than Polish ones and had good relationships with the French and Russian sections. This put Luxembourg in an even stronger position to present the STKPIL against the PPS to the international. Though Luxembourg had no formal leadership position, it was very much her party in the sense that its mission statement was to destroy the PPS and the independent Polish Socialist Party of Prussia in the international. Kautsky opposed Luxembourg's line on the basis that it ignored the progressive aspects of Polish independence. Others, such as Victor Adler and Bebel, did not necessarily disagree with her, but believed that Luxembourg would open up the international to further discord and splitting over this or other issues. And they recognised that the optics of crushing an organisation representing underprivileged Poles in Germany could be contentious, and they were reticent to get involved because they didn't know very much about Polish politics. It seemed kind of inscrutable to them. In this way, Luxembourg became a useful proxy for the SPD. The intensity of her opposition, as well as the fact of her being Polish, gave senior figures in the SPD permission to delegate their understanding of Polish politics to her, and also occasionally be more open about their chauvinism. Luxembourg attended a PPS conference in 1900 and submitted a motion that the party dissolve itself. Um, knowing that it would not pass. She then offered a compromise motion, the creation of a press commission that would supervise party propaganda, as well as the editorial policy of the party publication, the Workers' Gazette. The party jumped at the opportunity as they sought to bring Luxembourg in as a conciliatory gesture, but of course this was guised to shut down the party organ. At the next German party congress, Luxembourg spoke against PPS opposition to Prussian government measures to eradicate the use of the Polish language in schools and called on the PPS to dissolve into the SPD. At this stage, the PPS had begun putting up their own candidates against SPD candidates in Polish-speaking areas, which allowed the Germans to denounce the Poles as nationalist, and insisted Luxembourg or one of her allies be placed on the PPS paper's editorial board. One of her allies, Kasperzak, was put up in the Posen by-election for the Reichstag in March 1901, but the PPS protested against his imposition, and he polled less than 3%. At a conference in Lubok in 1901, the SPD succeeded in withdrawing financial support from Workers' Gazette, and the PPS, running out of money, entered into talks with Luxembourg, who sought to impose a programme with no reference to self-determination, demanding that the party become the Polish social democracy in Germany. The PPS accepted the SPD's demands, and Luxembourg then imposed a further condition subsequent to negotiations that the PPS explicitly renounced self-determination for Poland, which they did. Luxembourg then imposed another condition, to sign a compact to the effect that they were not to pursue self-determination or elect their own executive, and this was a step too far, and the PPS withdrew from negotiations. Bernstein, who I've already mentioned, would have been the chief exponent of the centrist position within the SPD against both incremental reformism and the party's left wing, which prepared itself as it saw for revolution. Bernstein's experience of living in England and coming into contact with a faction within the British socialist intelligentsia known as the Fabians, who were completely free of Marxist influence being pro-colonial, middle-class, unabashedly reformist, brought him around to the idea that socialists should focus on exerting democratic pressure in order to secure gradual social reforms. And this was the basis of a new doctrine which was laid out in a series of articles published in Die Neuzeit, and this came to be known as revisionism. One of the central arguments Bernstein made was against Marx's notion that revolution was imminent in Europe as predictions Marx had made during his lifetime had not been borne out. And capitalism clearly possessed a far greater capacity to maintain and reproduce itself despite its contradictions than he had believed. Bernstein located the source of this oversight in Marx inheriting notions of determinism, uh, laws governing social phenomena, as well as a priori judgments about social processes from Hegel, 
who was also responsible for the blankest elements among some of Marx's followers, the belief that revolution and or terrorism was sufficient to secure a socialist society. Bernstein effectively argued that a just distribution of wealth and opportunity could be achieved gradually within the existing system without having to seek its overthrow, and the task of the SPD should be to seek to move things in that direction through existing institutions such as trade unions, parliament and the state. He also introduced a pro-colonial chauvinism into his articles, arguing that the working class did have a fatherland, as well as legitimate reasons for seeking to defend it. These articles set off an enormous number of polemics um, by various figures within the Second International. Bernstein was criticised by Kautsky, Luxembourg, as well as Clara Zetkin, who was the head of the Socialist Women's Organisation, a close friend and collaborator of Luxembourg's, Alexander Parvas, Bebel, members of the French and Italian sections all contributed to this debate, making clear the degree to which it had begun to establish itself as an ideological centre of gravity within European social democracy. The overall thrust of these critiques, particularly the one Luxembourg put forward, was that Bernstein was seeking to do away with the revolutionary content of Marxism and had thrown his lot in with the liberal bourgeoisie. Luxembourg made the point that Bernstein's proposed reforms were exactly the kinds of reforms that the capitalist state would never extend or would only do so on very conditional grounds. This is what makes revolution necessary from Marx's point of view in the first place. These articles went on to form the basis of her publication, Reform or Revolution. Some of his opponents, particularly the Russians, demanded that Bernstein and his adherents be expelled from the party altogether, but this did not happen because neither Bebel nor Kautsky wanted to split. As time went on, his adherents ascended within the party bureaucracy. The left failed to consolidate its position within the rank-and-file, believing that it had made its advance by focusing on the disputes themselves, getting motions passed at congresses, making clear the organisation's supposed commitments to socialist revolution, but this had no real effect on the everyday process of negotiation or struggle in parliaments, unions or workplaces, and in any case, particular branches could keep the slogans as window dressing while going on about their everyday reformist business. As such, Bernstein's theory was ultimately the theoretical formalisation of what was already the de facto policy of the party and of the trade union movement. Industrialisation and food shortages in Russia in the 80s and 90s brought about a revival of political activity as well as a new popularity for social democracy. This led to a situation in which there were two generations of social democrats on the editorial board of Iskra, the newspaper of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, RSTLP. The old heads, Plakhanov, Zasulich and Axelrod, and then you had the younger Lenin, Martov and Patrasov. And it was the younger generation that had far stronger connections with the underground movement back in Russia and tended to write articles on more practical rather than theoretical problems. This tended to create deadlock on particular issues. Plakhanov felt threatened by this younger generation of Marxists and insisted on imposing his authority on all matters of theory and strategy. So Lenin's solution to this problem was to expand the editorial committee and bring a man named Trotsky on board. Trotsky was born Lev Davidovich Bronstein to a middle-class Ukrainian family in 1879. His involvement in underground politics began when he moved to the port city of Nikolaev on the Black Sea. He was initially a Narodnik, but he was won over to Marxism in an underground reading group from which the Southern Russian Workers' Union emerged. Trotsky's activities led to him being imprisoned for two years, where he read about the disputes which were then taking place within the Russian social democracy, as well as Lenin's writings on the development of capitalism in Russia. He gave lectures to his fellow prisoners on revolutionary doctrine, as well as Russian and European history. And Trotsky and his wife, who he married in prison, were then exiled to Siberia. And from there, Trotsky escaped to London, his wife agreeing to stay behind, where he met Lenin and joined the RSTLP in 1903. Uh, Luxembourg wrote a speech delivered by an SDKPIL delegate to a congress of the RSTLP, which was held that same year in London, 
about the desire of the SDK PIL to join the RSGLP subject to a particular set of conditions. The first was for the SDK PIL to be the sole representative of the Polish social democracy in the RSDLP, but to maintain their independence in the organizational structure. This contradiction in Luxembourg's position against her advocacy for representatives of subject peoples to liquidate themselves into large organizations was due to the fact that complete integration would have revealed that many of the SDKPIL's party committees were fictitious and existed only on paper. The SDKPIL also requested a stricter definition and clarification on the Russian stance on the national question, as well as a condemnation of what they called the social patriotism of the PPS. The RSDLP, now wanting to fall out with any particular section of the Polish social democracy, entered into backdoor negotiations with the SDKPIL, at which point Luxembourg and Gogaches realised that the RSDLP's stance on the national question was that self-determination of subject peoples was tactically necessary. Lenin said that it was only in exceptional circumstances that social democracy could support political separatism. Self-determination had to be, in some sense, subordinate to socialism, but the struggle for national self-determination was a useful tactical weapon. It was inculcated by capitalism and imperialism. National liberation struggles could widen and intensify struggles against both. He had argued this issue with other figures in the party, including Karl Radek, Nikolai Bukharin, and Piatikov, all of whom held with Luxembourg's position. Lenin denounced them all as anarchists and barred them from having any direct lines to the Russian section of the organization. As such, joining the RSDLP would have defeated the SDKPIL's purposes, which were to batten the PPS for their nationalism, and they withdrew from negotiations to join, denouncing the Russians as abandoning the class struggle in Poland and alienating Polish workers. Another dispute at that same Congress related to the position of the Jewish Social Democratic Organization within the party called the Bund, which demanded autonomy, its own central committee, cultural autonomy within the state, freedom to act on questions regarding the Jewish population, and sole agent status among Jewish workers. Martov, who had been one of the founders of the Bund, rejected this, as did Trotsky, upholding the stance that Lenin wanted to see imposed, and the motion failed to pass. The second dispute was between the Iskra men and the economists, the latter of which bemoaned the prominence that revolutionary politics had attained within the organization over struggles for constitutional rights and trade union agitation. Again, Trotsky here acted on Lenin's behalf and announced the economist position. Lenin also wanted to pass a motion which would centralize the organization of the RSDLP under the Central Committee, which would grant it responsibility for directing the movement, as well as authority to purge, discipline, or expel elements or individuals which went against its decrees. Party membership would also be confined to those who participated in one or other of the party organizations. Martov proposed a looser formula, admitting those who worked under the guidance or direction of a party organization. Lenin's motion was defeated, which he accepted, but divisions emerged towards the end of the Congress when the delegates came to elect the leading bodies of the party and the editorial board of Iskra. Because the Bund and the Economists had walked out, Lenin's candidates were unexpectedly elected by a majority, but with only two-thirds of the original delegates having cast their votes. Lenin insisted this was a legitimate ballot, but the minority refused to accept this. This led to a division within the party between the majority, Lenin's Bolshevik faction, and the minority, Marto's Menshevik faction. And on this, Trotsky unexpectedly broke with Lenin, accusing him of being overbearing and authoritarian. The Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks both appealed to the SPD to adjudicate the correctness of their respective positions. The Mensheviks had a certain advantage here, because they had the benefit of stronger social ties to the SPD, particularly after Plekhanov took against Lenin. Lenin's attempts to explain the Bolshevik position were ignored, as the SPD weighed in on the Menshevik side without understanding the issues. Luxembourg, who was recently assigned to the International Bureau tasked with reuniting the Russians, did have a better understanding, but saw it as an opportunity to go after Lenin for his stance on the national question. 
in opposition to Lenin's position on party discipline, which he described as blankist and uh, Nechevist, which is blankism with Russian characteristics. Uh, she also called him a Jacobin, a label which Lenin actually embraced. And he responded, not unfairly, that the Jacobins were the makers of the French Revolution, and this would make his opponents, by necessity, the timid conciliationist Girondins. Luxembourg presented the SPD's internal structures as a model for Russian social democratic organizing due to its capacity to move between flexibility or rigidity according to requirements. Lenin's rigidity would lead, as she saw it, to conservatism and bureaucratism. In a response that Kautsky refused to publish, Lenin charged her with not knowing what she was talking about. In the 1890s, the Russian finance minister, Sergei Vita, had inaugurated the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway to encourage the resettlement of peasants from overcrowded Black Earth provinces, to stimulate the mining metallurgical industries, to assist in the modernization of the economy, and also to consolidate Russian control in the East. Japan was also looking to open up markets and seek new sources of raw materials in Manchuria and Korea, and though some of the ministers of uh, Tsar Alexander III's successor, Nicholas II, urged him to be cautious. There was also a prevailing sentiment within the state bureaucracy that the Japanese were an inferior race and would be easily bested militarily if it came to a conflict. In February 1904, the Japanese Navy launched a surprise attack on the Russian fleet moored outside Port Arthur in Manchuria. The Russians sent in another one, which was obliterated at the Battle of Tsushima. Something that's important to say about Nicholas II was that he was deeply incompetent, inflexible and out of touch with the general population. He had no talent for choosing advisors who could administer the country or broker reformed compromises with emergent social forces. He also tended to dismiss anyone who knew what they were doing. The crushing military defeat underlined the poor leadership within both the Russian army as well as the state and motivated more educated sections of the population, especially in local government organisations such as the Zemstvos, to agitate for constitutional reform. Towards the end of 1904, Russian liberals organised a banquet campaign, which was modelled on similar soft anti-feudal activism which had been undertaken in France. On the 9th of January 1905, a huge crowd of workers led by the priest Father Gapon marched towards the Winter Palace in Petersburg to present a petition to the Tsar. This procession was a peaceful one. The marchers were legitimately inspired by their fate in the Tsar, they believed that bad advisers kept him misinformed about the wretched condition the Russian people lived in. It was a loyal demonstration. They carried church icons and portraits of the Tsar, but the palace guards shot at them and killed around 200 people and injured around 500 more. This prompted more revolutionary sections of the working class to begin to put pressure on the state. There were 14,000 strikes in 1905 in which 2.8 million people participated throughout the empire not just in the Russian heartland, but also in Poland and the Caucasus. The intervention of the forces of the state introduced a more political or anti-state character to these protests, and slogans such as down with the autocracy, down with the war, began to predominate. The Tsar at first promised a merely consultative assembly called the Duma, but its reduced powers of representation led to its being denounced. So the Tsar then issued a manifesto which promised a number of constitutional freedoms, including freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, more power for the Duma, and a broader franchise. The model here was the Prussian state, a unified government with a prime minister, but with an upper legislature that would act as a break on it. In the course of a general strike in October, workers from 50 different workplaces elected delegates invested with the responsibility to form a council, a militia, distribute food supplies and publish a newspaper, effectively function as a self-administered governing executive of workers. This structure was called a Soviet. It effectively became an authority that competed with the actual state executive, its orders and instructions commanded 
far more authority among the among the masses than the than the state did. They emerged in 50 other cities. They led strikes. They took control of railways and postal services. Though they were often formed by Mensheviks, there was often a generalized anti-party sentiment within them, a tendency to reject political parties as being obsolete or superseded by the form of the Soviet. Mensheviks and SR sent their representatives to the Soviets immediately, but the Bolsheviks demanded they accept their guidance beforehand. It was only in November when the influence of the Soviets became clear that Lenin recommended taking a more cooperative stance on them. While the Tsar seemed to be pledging concessions, state repression also began to escalate. Pyotr Dornovo, a noble and a graduate of the Naval Academy, had been appointed the Tsar's Minister for the Interior, having attracted his attention when he crushed the Baltic Fleet Revolt with hundreds of executions and tens of thousands of arrests. When the Petrograd Soviet attempted to provoke a bank run, Dornovo arrested about half of its deputies, about 260 people, as well, including its chairman Trotsky. Uh, attempts to organize an armed uprising before the Soviet could be dispersed completely failed, but the Moscow Soviet, formed after the one in Petrograd and not as militant, was pressed into calling a general strike. And this culminated in an uprising in December when 80,000 workers joined us, setting up barricades. The Bolsheviks were in a position to call for an armed insurrection. Not necessarily they were, that they were decisive, but they did. The army started putting down insurgents with artillery barrages. 700 workers were killed. 2,000 were wounded. Liberal reformers were initially favourably disposed towards the Social Democrats, but this changed once the Tsar's manifesto had been published, both because they feared the strength of the labour movement as manifest in 1905, and also because it split them into two different camps. The first, Octoberus, who accepted the manifesto and thought that it went far enough and there was no more reform that needed to be undertaken. You also had the Constitutional Democrats, or cadets, which is a patriotic constitutional democratic organization who were seeking to secure the position of the Russian bourgeoisie by rolling back some of the more egregiously feudal elements from the Russian state. They recognized that the manifesto did not go far enough in achieving that aim, and they withheld acceptance in the hopes that the Tsar would grant universal suffrage and also a solution to the land question based on compulsory purchase orders. The cadets won a majority in the Duma in alliance with the Trudeviks, a peasant party, and they began work on a body of progressive legislation. With the opening of the Duma in 1906, reformers and revolutionaries began to return to Russia from exile, including Lenin and Martov, or emerge from the underground, allowing political parties to take on a more coherent shape out in the open. Lenin initially favoured participation in the Duma on the basis of what he regarded as the uselessness of political boycotts, but workers who had been involved in the 1905 strikes were dismissive. Participation in the Duma sounded like Menshevism to them, so Lenin backed down and changed his position. The Mensheviks and SRs did participate. Part of this was undertaken in order to secure a broader audience for socialist politics, but another aspect was the Mensheviks increasingly identifying with the liberal bourgeoisie at the expense of the labour movement. This was partly for theoretical reasons. All socialists agreed that Russia had to undergo an anti-feudal bourgeois revolution and industrialize before socialism could be achieved. But on more pragmatic grounds, the Menshevik leadership also had a more middle-class character. Again, all Russian socialists agreed with the essential theoretical content of the Menshevik line. Lenin agreed the bourgeois revolution had to come first, but he argued that the working class still had to take a leading role here because the middle class would not resist autocracy effectively or for very long as they feared revolution as much as, if not more, than Tsarism, in order to secure a position which was as advantageous as possible in the subsequent struggle for socialism, the working class must be at the forefront of social democratic activity. 
this more radical stance was noted by authorities who were far more likely to arrest Bolshevik than Menshevik leaders. However, after 10 weeks, this first Duma was dissolved when negotiations between it and the Council of Ministers, which was appointed by the Tsar and favourably disposed towards maintaining the status quo, broke down. Both Vita and De Norvo were replaced by one man from a noble background named Pyotr Stolypin, who immediately set about fixing the elections for the Second Duma by banning socialist meetings, removing working-class voters from the electoral lists, financially supporting right-wing candidates, but the left did even better, with the socialist delegates outnumbering the cadets two to one. Schlieppen then demanded the Duma eject the Social Democrats, and once this demand was refused, the second Duma was dissolved, and 55 Social Democratic deputies were arrested, which provoked strikes among workers in Petrograd and Moscow. Schlieppen's aim was to play the role of a Russian Bismarck, to cut off the support that existed for the reformist bourgeoisie and a revolutionary working class, by cultivating a strata of conservative petty bourgeois peasantry through land purchasing, the extension of local government powers, the eking out of further extensions of civil rights, and the removal of discrimination based on social estates. And he would do this while waging a counter-revolutionary campaign of violence, arresting activists across the empire, deporting tens of thousands of them into exile or forced labour, establishing special field courts to hang 3,000 people, often in public, and directing police to penetrate revolutionary organizations as spies. This repression escalated further when Stilipin's villa was bombed in an assassination attempt, killing 28 people, including his daughter. In the winter of 1906-1907, much of rural Russia was under martial law at all times. However, while the property establishment Stilipin had buttressed by the selective franchise he imposed on the Duma might have cheered his campaign of repression on, they did. They prevented him from instating his social reforms, which were the necessary other face of the of the brutality. Lenin abandoned his boycott policy in the elections to the Third Duma and voted with the Mensheviks in order to face down those within his own faction who supported it, in order to secure a platform for revolutionary politics in a way that was much more broad than clandestine propaganda or activity ever could. He also supported working with legal trade unions and encouraged his colleagues to publish material which was permitted under the censorship again to broaden his base of support. Bolsheviks and Mensheviks therefore openly competed for the vote. Thirteen Social Democratic deputies were elected in all. Six of them were Bolsheviks and seven of them were Mensheviks. But all Bolshevik deputies came from the working class voter base, whereas a good portion of the Menshevik support came from more middle class constituencies. And this led Lenin to begin to press for an open split. Stalin worked to ensure this policy would not be enacted knowing that it would be unpopular, and sure enough, the Bolshevik deputies and Pravda followed Stalin's lead in ignoring Lenin's instructions. The post-1905 reaction depleted party ranks very significantly. By Lenin's estimates, they went from 100,000 in 1906 to 10,000 in 1910. Nevertheless, 1905 left a significant legacy of unionization and organization in the workplace. Worker struggles had succeeded in reducing working hours and in achieving a 36% wage increase. Even though between 1906 and 1909, 350 unions were banned, 500 were refused registration, by 1907, 300,000 people had joined unions, and in many sectors or city districts, more than half the workforce had been unionised. The SRs were one of the foremost beneficiaries of 1905, becoming the largest left party with around 60,000 members. The spectrum of political opinion within the SRs was enormous. There were veterans of the Narodnik movement, there were right SRs who were subsequently to break off in favour of a constitutional monarchy, but there were also anarchists calling for the immediate creation of a workers' republic. The SRs were strongest in the countryside, 
but they also had significant representation among factory workers, soldiers and sailors. And though they committed themselves to revolution via armed insurrection, their leadership were ambivalent on the question of peasants seizing estates and burning out their landlords, but ultimately they did not have much control over what local branches were doing, saying or calling for, particularly out into the countryside. Uh, for example, only a very small number of terrorist acts attributed to SRs were carried out with the approval of the party itself. The overwhelming majority were committed either by individuals taking their own initiative locally or by the police who had informers and agitators in the organisation. You also had the emergence of far-right parties such as the Union of the Russian People and the Black Hundreds which mobilised a coalition of the working class and lumpen proletariat around a nationalist, anti-democratic and counter-revolutionary platform. They fought socialists, workers and they carried out pogroms against Jews with the aim of protecting or upholding the autocracy through a programme of counter-revolutionary terror. Tsar Nicholas extended pardons to those who are arrested or prosecuted for participation in these pogroms and even gave them financial support. Nicholas II was incidentally committed to the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory which was laid out in the forged Protocols of the Elders of Zion. The SPD sent solidarity and money to Russia. There were meetings at which speeches were given about the precedent that the Russians had established for the German working class and it inspired a strike wave with a distinctively political character. This opened up a new debate about revisionism with the trade union leadership asserting that the party should have a limited involvement in determining the direction or objective of strikes and should never seek to escalate them. Earlier that year, the trade union leadership had actually intervened to prevent a large-scale work stoppage in the Roar from spreading out into other industries. Otto Hue, a leading figure in the mining union, knew that Luxembourg would be their primary opponent in this party dispute and wrote an article calling those who sought to push German workers to revolution from their summer holiday resorts class war theoreticians and told them to go to Russia. The revisionist factions joined in with the liberal press in calling Luxembourg Bloody Rosa and comparing her with Joan of Arc. In February 1906, the SPD executive concluded a deal with the trade unions that they were to have absolute autonomy in all trade union questions and that the party would not have a say on any questions in that regard without the full consent of the unions. Luxembourg, Kautsky and Zetkin all opposed this measure, insisting on the mass strike as a legitimate tactic and the best means of working towards the overthrow of capitalism. But by this stage, the momentum was going out of events in Russia and Germany was beginning to return to political normality. Luxembourg wrote a pamphlet on 1905 arguing that it offered a precedent that the German working class could look to. She argued that the social democratic demand in Russia must be for a freely elected all-Russian constituent assembly that could draw up a republican constitution and that this would provide the new battleground within which social democracy could operate openly. The SPD withdrew Luxembourg's document all the same and produced a watered-down version that was less revolutionary in its rhetoric so as not to undermine the new understanding that had developed between the unions and the executive. Luxembourg had begun to gravitate more towards the Bolshevik position, defending Lenin against Plakhanov and Mensheviks, charging him with blankism, noting that the Mensheviks had begun to gravitate towards the reforming bourgeoisie in the Duma and away from the militant working class. And this allowed Lenin to draw on SDK-PIL help to secure consistent majorities at the 1906 Congress of the RSDLP, though Lenin resented having to negotiate with them separately. SDK-PIL members Warsowski and Dezerzhinsky were voted onto editorial board and Russian Central Committee positions. The Poles did, however, form a united front with the Mensheviks and Trotsky in voting against Lenin on the issue of armed raids and expropriation of captured money, which the Bolsheviks engaged in in order to fund party activity. And by 1912, when Lenin forced a final split, the benefits of the Bolshevik approach to underground organising, as opposed to liquidating themselves into legality, had become obvious. The Mensheviks were far weaker and much more disorganised than the Bolsheviks. 
All but a small group of Germans in the SPD were opposed to war as a matter of principle, but in practice there was no common attitude to international conflict or colonialism in the SPD or in the international. It had condemned militarism at a conference in 1891 and in London had adopted a resolution to replace armies with people's militias, but they ultimately were all organised nationally and the international was in no position to coordinate against other governments. At a Congress of the International in Stuttgart in August 1907, there were some signs of policy differences to come in the future, and divisions began to emerge on the question of what the International would do in the event of war. The French argued that the workers' movement could prevent the war with the revolutionary action, and that it was the International's duty to prevent war if it could. Um, the Germans were pessimistic, their delegation was reluctant to discuss the issue at all. Lenin offered a Russian mandate to Luxembourg and was happy to let her take the floor as a more articulate spokesman for his position, which was to the left of the French, recommending using the war to hasten the general overthrow of capitalism, and Luxembourg's amendment was adopted. In 1910, a reform of the suffrage system was introduced in Prussia. It tinkered with the existing system, moved some groups from the bottom to the middle section, and effectively satisfied no one. This prompted demonstrations in Berlin as well as the Prussian provinces. The law passed in March, but the government withdrew it, fueling further anger. The trade unions organised strikes, took more than 370,000 workers out to get involved in stoppages. Luxembourg toured the provinces, spoke and agitated, but one of her articles for Vorwärts was rejected on the basis of its advocacy of a mass strike. She sent it to Neuseit, but Kautsky censored a section that discussed Republican agitation, and this deepened a growing distance between Luxembourg and Kautsky, whose views were becoming increasingly quietest, focused on forthcoming elections and sociological developments which were beyond the control of the party or revolutionaries acting within it. By contrast, Luxembourg was trying to weave together a sense of the party leadership as an advance guard of the working class while maintaining a commitment to the spontaneous action of the masses, effectively trying to think about how you could combine Leninism and anarcho-syndicalism in order to smash the reformist executive and trade unions. Luxembourg's break with Kautsky meant that her most powerful ally both in the party and the international was gone, and the increasingly strong revisionist trade union bureaucracy and deputies who had experienced significant, enormous improvements in their standard of living since taking their seats in the Reichstag could depend on Kautsky to take against Luxembourg in party disputes. Luxembourg had no interest in forming a left opposition within the SPD she regarded as a futile task. On a more local level, there was space for unofficial forms of cooperation between like-minded individuals who might collaborate semi-clandestinely by presenting duplicate resolutions to party congresses. Some of the people in Luxembourg's orbit around this time include Wilhelm Pieck, Talmeyer, Marschluski, Franz Mehring, and Anton Panikouk. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne was not someone in Luxembourg's left orbit. He was a different guy. He was shot in Sarajevo by a Bosnian Serb. And Austria saw this as an opportunity to declare war on Serbia. Germany stepped in to prevent Russia from halting their plans to expand into Eastern Europe. The Brits declared war when the Germans went through neutral Belgium on the basis of a war plan to smash France first and then circle around to Russia who declared war on the Ottoman Empire after the Black Sea Fleet was attacked in Odessa. And the Tsar was committed to securing the Bosphorus, and later on, Austrian ruled Galicia, as well as a chunk of Anatolia. A state of emergency was declared in Germany, and the executive of the SDP met in order to determine the stance that their deputies would take on voting for war credits in the Reichstag. 
Revisionists such as Schiedemann spoke in favour of voting yes on the basis of the threat that the Russians posed to German liberty. 20 deputies said that they would defy party discipline in order to vote for war credits if that was necessary. Haas, Ledebor, Otto Ruhl and Karl Liebknecht called for a no vote consistent with the lines of the party and following the precedent set by Bevel and his father Wilhelm Liebknecht in 1870. Um, Liebknecht had been born into the party, of course. He was a lawyer and a militant youth organiser. He championed the anti-military struggle and he set out its necessity and principles in a pamphlet which got him imprisoned. The party hierarchy tended to regard him as troublesome and unsophisticated, a view that Luxembourg would have shared to an extent. They both admired one another to a point. They were also wary and they had clashed on a number of issues in the past. When the deputies decided by 78 against 14 for the war, the dissenters agreed to accept party discipline. In return for their loyalty to the state, their willingness to preserve the civil peace with trade unions guaranteeing employers there would be no strikes, the SPD were legitimised in contrast with the treatment they faced under previous periods of wartime, their organisations were allowed to continue to function. The outbreak of World War I therefore redrew the factional lines in the Second International. Adler's position that if Social Democrats did not reciprocate the patriotic outpouring of the masses they would be isolated was typical, and this along with fear of state repression under conditions of war dictatorship, prompted the overwhelming majority of whatever anti-militarist factions there were within the parties to fall into line, with each relevant section arguing that the Austrian, German, English or Russian ruling class was the lesser evil, and that waging a war against the other side was historically necessary and progressive. This was known as the defensist line, and they were in the majority. A minority of defeatists retained their pre-war anti-imperialist commitment, seeing with horror how many supposedly revolutionary organisations had abandoned their Marxism and adopted the nationalist patriotic line in order to place themselves in a better position to bargain for state concessions. When Lenin first read that the SPD had voted for war credits, betraying the European working class, he thought that it was propaganda. He refused to believe it. After Germany declared war on Russia, crowds of students, townspeople, workers undertook demonstrations of loyalty to the Tsar, singing songs, carrying flags, banners, icons outside the Winter Palace. The Bolshevik faction in the Duma initially yielded to the military patriotism and fell in line with the majority of cadets, SRs and Mensheviks, some of whom, not all, went so far as to call for an end to all political agitation until Prussian militarism had been crushed. And Martov was one notable anti-war Menshevik, and by contrast, Plekhanov talked about how much pleasure it would give him to bayonet his German comrades, that the Hohenzollerns and the Habsburgs were the true enemies of socialism and not the Tsar. Vacillation among some Bolsheviks was largely because Lenin was unable to exert discipline over the underground party from Switzerland. Bolshevik leaders who were still in Russia feared that they would lose support if they committed themselves too strongly to Tsarism's overthrow at the hands of foreign powers, and the outbreak of the war had been used as a pretext to imprison some Bolshevik deputies and to charge them with treason. Lenin's writings on the war, which condemned the leaders of the Second International for their betrayal of socialism, called for social revolution in all countries and said Russia's defeat at the hands of Germany would assist the Russian working class as it would weaken Tsarism, was presented as evidence against the Bolshevik Lev Kamenev in court. And Kamenev distanced himself from it, and this led to confused and angry debates among the exiles, and this wasn't helped by the fact that seven members of the Petersburg Committee were police agents. On September 5th, 1915, the Zimmerwald Conference was organised by Italian socialists in order to lay the foundation for an anti-war line against the Second International. However, within the anti-imperialist cohort, there was a division between those who wanted to use working-class leverage to secure peace and return to normal working-class politics, 
versus those who wanted to use the imperialist war to bring about a continent-wide civil war in order to overthrow capitalism. The former pacifist cohort included the SPD opposition around Luxembourg, Zetkin, Liebknecht and Mehring. Their first public anti-war statement was noteworthy from the point of view of how tepid it was, whereas Lenin put forward a motion to split the international along pro and anti-war lines, with the latter then setting up a new third international. Luxembourg and the German opposition were unwilling to go that far. He only secured seven votes against 30. Though they recognised the bankruptcy of the Second International, they didn't want a split. Their task, as they saw it, was to win the party back and restore the previously anti-imperialist old SPD and Second International. And as a result, a compromise motion was passed, which called for a class war against annexationist peace and a condemnation of social democrats who supported the war. Trotsky wrote up the Zimmerwald Manifesto, which called upon the working peoples of Europe to repudiate the chauvinism of their leaders and put an end to the slaughter. Liebknecht was the first SPD leader to break party discipline by voting against further war credits. His opposition was prevented from entering into the Reichstag record, so his comments were distributed legally. And this, along with the anti-war publication, was one of the means through which anti-war sentiment began to spread out into Bremen, Stuttgart, Brunswick and Leipzig. The military authorities called Liebknecht up in February 1915, rotating him across a number of different units because they feared his political influence. This also suited the SPD, which regarded him as increasingly dangerous. They had, up until now, been happy to play their role in maintaining the civil peace and assisting in the organising of the war economy, the burden of which was being carried by the working people. Uh, food prices inflated while wages stagnated. Everyone's earnings began to tend towards a, a minimum. Bread rations were introduced, which one rightist SPD leader described as food socialism. With the death at the front, starvation and repression, discontent began to express itself with protests for peace or riots over food prices. In May, Liebknecht, Luxembourg and other anti-war social democrats were arrested, their newspapers were banned or suppressed, and 55,000 munitions workers, miners in the Ruhr, went on strike the same day Liebknecht appeared in court. And there were also food riots in Hamburg. This gave the radicals a more space to build an organisation, the International Group, that would organise opposition to annexations, denounce the civil peace as illusory, and call for an end to the war. They printed newspapers and organised clandestinely, but they were constantly subject to arrest and imprisonment. They would go on to compose the nucleus of the Spartacus group. Though their executive never exceeded 50 members, they maintained close contacts with workers in the factories, primarily metal workers, and successfully recruited reliable members in the trade unions, worked to secure them key positions, and succeeded on a number of occasions in encouraging workers to express their will to challenge the state. This happened to the extent they were ultimately able to mobilise tens or hundreds of thousands of Berlin workers. Under pressure from the left and sensitive to the changing mood of the masses, some Reichstag deputies such as Stathagen and Hugo Haas, who had taken over as chairman of the SPD since Bebel's death in 1913, began to denounce the war economy. Um, while they did not oppose the war effort, they called for some softening of the domestic state of siege, saying that it weakened the morale of the fatherland. In May 1916, more of the party apparatus came over to this loyal opposition, bringing about a split in the parliamentary group. However, there was still a big gap between the revolutionaries in the Spartacus and the pacifists. The latter refused to participate in any strikes or demonstrations. Neither side took the initiative to bring about an SPD anti-war split. They failed to even agree on a motion that would withdraw from paying party dues, but the executive did not reward them for their meekness and expelled them. 
91 local organisations or branches under the control of the opposition were liquidated and new ones were set up, shedding the majority of actives from Berlin, Leipzig, Bremen and Brunswick from the organisation. In this way, a split was forced on the opposition and they formed a new body, the Independent Social Democratic Party of Germany, USPD, in April 1917. The USPD claimed 120,000 members while 170,000 stayed with the SPD. The USPD basically held the leader of every pre-war tendency, Liebknecht, Ledebor, Luxembourg, Kautsky, Hilferding, Bernstein and Haas, under a recommitment to the Erfurt program, making it an uneasy alliance of centrists, revisionists and revolutionists, coming mostly from the Spartacists, who now joined the USPD as a body. There was significant opposition to this happening, uh, Lenin criticised them, radical left groups in Bremen, Hamburg, Hanover and Rustringen called for the Spartacists to break from the centre and constitute an independent party, which Luxembourg resisted out of a fear of losing contact with the masses. Uh, when Luxembourg and Liebknecht were organising a May Day demonstration in Berlin, they entered into negotiations with the Ledebor group, the Kautsky group and the Haas group, but no joint action could be agreed. Um, Ledebor denounced the Spartacists as nihilists for stirring up the masses for a confrontation that would get them all killed. And similarly, when Liebknecht was arrested and sentenced to two and a half years hard labour, a sentence that was increased by a military court to four years, a sentence that incidentally provoked the first political strike of the war, the SPD offered no support and the USPD refused to take a firmly oppositional stance. The Russian masses uh, became increasingly receptive to anti-war agitation that the Bolsheviks were conducting as the Russian army suffered crushing defeats. There were five million casualties between 1914 and 1917 and the German army began to penetrate deeply into the empire's western territory. As in 1905, there were significant amounts of public anger over the incompetence of the army leadership as well as the failure of the state to adequately organise the economy in service of the war effort. During a German offensive in the summer of 1915, there were shell shortages and soldiers lacked rifles as well as uniforms. These defeats stoked suspicion of uh, treason within the state, and the primary target of these conspiracy theories was the Empress Alexandra, who was German by birth. There were also rumours about a relationship she had with a mystic healer in court named Rasputin, who interfered in ministerial appointments, leading to a deterioration in relations between the government and the Fourth Duma. Rasputin was ultimately murdered by court nobles and a right-wing Duma deputy in order to preserve the dignity of the autocracy. There was a strong infrastructure for socialist organising in the army as about 20% of the workforce was conscripted and uh, particular efforts were made to draft in more advanced skilled workers who had been involved in strikes. However, a shortage of skilled work emerged in the arms sector, which led to an increase in women and peasant workers, consolidating the connection that the industrial workforce had to the land, which was, from Lenin's perspective, one of the objective foundations for how a revolutionary socialist government was to take and hold on to power in Russia, i.e. find a line to the working class and poor peasantry. Was it going to work? We'll find out next time.